Welcome to Think for Christ. My name is Anthony Alberino, and today we're going to embark on the first in a series of talks that I'm titling Evangelical Anti-Intellectualism. Over the coming episodes, we're going to look at the problem of evangelical anti-intellectualism. We'll consider the historical development of the problem. We'll talk about solutions to the problem. Now, much of our examination is going to be done from a historical and sociological perspective. Full disclosure, I'm neither a historian nor am I a sociologist. These are not my areas of academic training. I am, however relying for my information on those who are experts in these fields. So let me share a few of the more accessible resources that I will be using here. First is that classic I talked about last week, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. This is written by Mark Knoll, who is a PhD in history, and he specializes in Christian history. Awesome book. From a sociological perspective, we have Fit Bodies and Fat Minds. This is written by sociologist Oz Guinness. Um, he has a focus um, on American culture. He's actually from England. And yes, he is part of the famous Guinness beer family. But this is a really, really good book from the perspective of sociology. Then, of course, we have a philosophical perspective. This is Love Your God With All Your Mind by philosopher J.P. Moreland. He's a PhD in philosophy. I highly, highly recommend this book. This one's a little bit more difficult, but I think he really puts his finger on the issue. Finally, there is Full Gospel, Fractured Minds. This is a book written from the perspective of a charismatic and Pentecostal. Rick Nanez is, uh, last I checked, I believe he's actually a missionary in Ecuador. I could be wrong on that, but that, that I believe is um, his vocation. So another great book, again, written from a charismatic and, and Pentecostal perspective. I'm also going to provide you with uh, a list of great resources for those of you who want to do their own reading on this subject. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put up a slide right now. You can pause this video and take a screenshot for your records if you would like to do your own reading. I'll also go ahead and post these in the description of the video. All right, that's all I have by way of introduction. Let's jump in. For many of you, the idea that is evangelical anti-intellectualism is an unfamiliar one. And if that's the case, don't feel bad, you're not alone. In my experience, most within the evangelical movement are totally unaware that there is any such thing. This is not the case, however, among professional historians and sociologists who specialize in American history and culture. In the academic world, the phenomenon of evangelical anti-intellectualism is, unfortunately, a well-documented one. In a, coming ep in a coming episode in this series, we'll look at the historical roots and development of anti-intellectualism within the evangelical movement. Sadly, the reality of anti-intellectualism in the church is not just an academic curiosity. It's also the common observation made about the church from the broader secular culture. Surveys that poll the general public about their perception of the evangelical community consistently reveal that 
people find evangelicals to be ignorant, uninformed, anti-science, uneducated. The aging philosopher Bertrand Russell once quipped, most Christians would rather die than think. This sentiment fairly represents the general attitude toward evangelicals. So there is a problem here. But before we look into it in greater detail, let's start with some definitions. There's two terms in particular that we need to define. The first, of course, is evangelical. Now, following Mark Knoll, my use of this term here is going to be a broad one, certainly a broader one than you'll find in other works. Evangelicals can be characterized by the following four basic beliefs. First, the necessity of conversion as a supernatural new birth or being born again. Second is the authority of the Bible as the inspired and errant word of God. The third belief has to do with the centrality of the gospel. This is the focus on Christ's redeeming and atoning work in the crucifixion and resurrection. And finally, the fourth belief is the call to evangelism by spreading the gospel. So when people use the term evangelical, they're typically referring to a subset within the Protestant church. However, given my broad definition here, it is possible for Catholic or Orthodox Christians to be evangelical as well. Nevertheless, for the purpose of this series, I'm going to specifically have Protestant evangelicals in mind. That said, if you're a Catholic or Orthodox Christian listen, listening in, feel free to put on these shoes if they fit. All right, the second term that needs to be defined is anti-intellectualism. This is of the Christian variety. So let me try to capture what I mean by this word with the following grouping of statements. First is the hostility to and mistrust of the intellect and reason in the life of the Christian. A disposition to discount the importance of the knowledge of the truth as foundational to the faith. A general dismissal of higher education, including philosophy, art, literature, and science, as unworthy of pursuit for the believer. And a neglect of the mind as an essential focus of Christian discipleship. As we've seen in an earlier video, Mark Knoll calls the anti-intellectualism within the church the scandal of the evangelical mind. And he writes the first sentence of his book, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. For Oz Guinness, it's both a scandal and a sin. He writes, it's a scandal in the sense of being an offense and a stumbling block that needlessly hinders serious people from considering the Christian faith and coming to Christ. It is a sin because it's a refusal, contrary to the first of Jesus' two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with our minds. Noel, Guinness, and others point to several places in which evangelical anti-intellectualism is manifested today. First, we have anti-intellectualism at the level of the individual believers. Studies show a downward trend in biblical, theological, and historical literacy among evangelicals. Few evangelicals have a consistent biblical worldview today, and most are superficial in their thinking and intellectually unengaged. J.P. Moreland observes that evangelicals rarely read, and when they do, it's typically Christian self-help books that are filled with self-serving content, slogans, 
simplistic moralizing, a lot of stories and pictures, and inadequate diagnosis of issues that place no demand on the reader. And William Lane Craig writes that our churches are filled with Christians who are idling in intellectual neutral. As Christians, their minds are going to waste. Evangelical anti-intellectualism is also manifested corporately at the level of the local church. Evangelical churches across this country prioritize the passions and focus on Christian experience while generally neglecting the Christian intellect. Very few evangelical churches have well-established discipleship programs, and the ones that do rarely include a focus on cultivating the life of the mind. The sad truth is that it is unusual for believers in our churches to be taught how to think carefully and deeply about what they believe and why they believe it. And this has created an environment in many of our evangelical churches that is not welcoming or attractive for those who do value and pursue a life of the mind. Moreland conveys a sad truth. He writes, In too many churches, a questioning mind can be a plague to its owner. The thinking woman or man seldom gets much support today, and more often than not meets with resistance and suspicion. And so, the Christian who must use his or her mind because they are driven by the joy of using it, can exist in an odd, ambivalent relationship with his brothers and sisters in Christ. The late William Hall, theologian and former provost of Samford University, lamented the fact that Protestant churches in America do not engage or provide support for those who are called to scholarship. He speaks about the tragic imbalance which now exists, according to which the dominant religion in America is almost destitute of intellectual firepower. He writes, Suffice it to say that the church has failed to define its intellectual responsibilities in compelling terms, to call out from among its own those gifted to discharge this neglected stewardship and to provide such budding scholars with support for the kind of advanced training that will equip them to do credible work on so exacting a frontier. The very few who decide to make the integration of Christianity and scholarship a lifelong calling usually do so at their own initiative, with precious little encouragement, either from the church or from the academy. Now, there's also been a gradual shift in the expected role of the pastor over the last century. The primary responsibility of the pastor used to be the teacher and the defender of the truth. Pastors were once the leading intellectuals of their day. They were intellectually engaged, being skilled in the scriptures, but also conversant with the history, philosophy, and science of the day. For example, listen to what the great founder of Methodism, John Wesley, says to aspiring young pastors in his 1756, an address to the clergy. He writes, Ought not a minister to have a good understanding, a clear apprehension, a sound judgment, and a capacity of reasoning with some closeness? Is not this necessary in a high degree for the work of the ministry? Otherwise, how will he be able to understand the various states of those under his care? or to steer them through a thousand difficulties and dangers to the haven where they would be. 
Is it not necessary with respect to the numerous enemies whom he has to encounter? Can a fool cope with all the men that know not God and with all the spirits of darkness? Nay, he will neither be aware of the devices of Satan nor the craftiness of his children. Wesley goes on in this address to say that every minister has the responsibility to be intellectually sophisticated and conversant in history, science, logic, philosophy, and even mathematics. How far we have come from this idea of what a pastor should be. Today, we have all but abandoned the model of the pastor as the broker of truth, and we've replaced it with a managerial model pattern after the corporate world that emphasizes leadership abilities, administration, and church growth techniques. We've traded the image of the pastor as spiritual and intellectual authority for an image of the pastor as CEO and executive. Now, evangelical anti-intellectualism is also manifested in the realm of academics and the wider culture. In the early 1900s, Evangelicals largely abandoned the universities, the arts, and other realms of high culture. Instead of being a salt and light where it was needed the most, we retreated from the centers of higher learning and we formed our own educational institutions, thus confining ourselves to a kind of cultural ghetto. Not surprisingly then, when it comes to academics, we've had little intellectual muscle and very little influence. Despite our numbers, the evangelical church has been a relatively unimpactful community. We've had a paltry impact on American culture. We've allowed ourselves to become marginalized. The Christian faith is now seen as a private affair that's not suitable for public life or public discourse. Evangelicals no longer compete in the marketplace of ideas as we once did. Indeed, it seems that as a community, we are utterly powerless to stop the degradation and perversion of our society that we are watching unfold before us. Now, when it comes to the realm of academics and culture, there is hope. And we're going to talk about this later. Since the 1960s, there has been a revival of theism, and especially Christian theism, in the philosophy departments of secular universities across this country. And over the last 20 years or so, we've also experienced an explosion of evangelical apologetics, which rose to meet the challenge of the new atheism. As I said, these are things we'll have cause to talk about more in a future episode. Now, some of you may be thinking, why spend all this time focusing on the problem of evangelical anti-intellectualism? Why not just talk about the solution? Well, because the first step in any good recovery program is to admit that there is, in fact, a problem. As a community, we have to own up to our own hostility and indifference to the intellectual life. Now, according to Moreland, there's three difficult questions evangelicals need to ask themselves today. The first is why is our impact on society and culture not proportionate to our numbers? The second is why are ministers no longer viewed as the intellectual and cultural leaders in their communities that they once were? 
And finally, how is it possible for a person to be an active member of an evangelical church for 20 or 30 years and still know next to nothing about the history and theology of the Christian religion, the methods and tools required for serious Bible study, and the skills and information necessary to preach and defend Christianity in a post-Christian neo-pagan culture? These are sobering questions that deserve honest answers. And as long as the evangelical community remains blissfully unaware of its own neglect of the mind, it will never seek repentance. It will never seek reform. And if we're going to have any hope of influencing the culture in which we live, it is imperative that we wake up from our mental slumber. Oz Guinness's exhortation to the church is urgent. We evangelicals, he says, need to examine our anti-intellectualism, confess its pervasiveness, repent of its wrongness, and seek God's restoration to live up to our name. Truly being people of the gospel, who love God, not only with our hearts, souls, and strength, but also with our minds. Anti-intellectualism is quite simply a sin. Evangelicals must address it as such, beyond all excuses, evasions, or rationalizations of false piety. So in summary of this episode, the evangelical church in America has a serious problem. It doesn't give appropriate attention to the development of the intellect. It fails to encourage believers to know what they believe and why they believe it, or to think deeply about the faith and about the world. It doesn't place a high value on knowledge of the truth and it has all but abandoned its sacred duty to nurture, disciple, and generally care for the Christian mind. And the worst part about it is that everyone seems to know about the problem except for us evangelicals. We're like the schoolboy who walks around campus with a kick-me sticker on his back. Everyone giggles and chuckles as he passes, and he has no idea why. And of course, some of the more astute among our ranks recognized the problem long ago and warned us to turn from our ways before it's too late. In an address at the dedication of the Billy Graham Center in 1980, Charles Malik, former Lebanese ambassador to the United States, issued the following warning to the gathered assembly of believers. I must be frank with you. The greatest danger confronting American evangelical Christianity is the danger of anti-intellectualism. The mind in its greatest and deepest reaches is not cared for enough. But intellectual nurture cannot take place apart from profound immersion for a period of years in the history of thought and the spirit. People who are in a hurry to get out of the university and start earning money or serving the church or preaching the gospel have no idea of the infinite value of spending years of leisure conversing with the greatest minds and souls of the past, ripening and sharpening and enlarging their powers of thinking. The result is that the arena of creative thinking is vacated and abdicated to the enemy. Who among the evangelicals can stand up to the great secular or naturalistic or atheistic scholars on their own terms of scholarship and research? Who among the evangelical scholars is quoted as a normative source by the greatest secular authorities on history or philosophy or psychology or sociology or politics? 
Does your mode of thinking have the slightest chance of becoming the dominant mode of thinking in the great universities of Europe and America, which stamp your entire civilization with their own spirit and ideas? It will take a different spirit altogether to overcome this great danger of anti-intellectualism. For the sake of the greater effectiveness in witnessing to Jesus Christ himself, as well as for their own sakes, the evangelicals cannot afford to keep on living on the periphery of responsible intellectual existence. Now, some of you may be wondering about the value of this discussion. I mean, who cares if the evangelical church doesn't give attention to the cultivation of the Christian mind? What's the big deal? Why not just put our heads down, read our Bibles, enjoy our worship services, experience the presence of the Lord, and share the gospel? Why should we care about the so-called problem of anti-intellectualism? Well, the reason that we should care about it is this. The failure to give proper attention to the cultivation of the Christian mind has had devastating effect on both the American church and the broader American culture. To see how, you'll have to tune in to the next episode of Think for Christ.